Jesus and friends of people who didn't know Jesus, number one. So their lives weren't compartmentalised, it wasn't there the Jesus bit and, uh, and then other friends bit. The whole thing was mixed up. And they were very happy to be around Jesus and around their friends who didn't know Jesus. And that was the first ingredient. The second ingredient was faith. The, um, Jesus mentioned faith three times in the story. And it's actually very rare and quite hard to find a story of a miracle without reference to faith. There are some, but the majority in, involve explicit mention of faith. And the third thing was that there was unexpected elements in the miracle. So, like I said, I would have expected Lazarus to have come floating out of the tomb, shining, because it's a miracle. He actually came stumbling out with his face still covered in cloth, and there was work to be done. Unravel the man and clean him up. Yes, it was a miracle, but there's work to be done. And sometimes we can, I think we think miracles is kind of, it's, it's so out there, we don't understand that it, they take place in the nitty-gritty of life, and the nitty-gritty of life goes on in the middle of miracles. And then there's still work to be done. I want to take that very same story today and use it as a parable for prayer. Not that it is a parable for prayer, that's not what it was intended for, but I believe as I, as I read the story again and I show you what I mean, you'll understand that there are some very wonderful and profound lessons about prayer in it. And really the context is the same. We were looking at miracles in terms of the miracle of salvation last week. We want to see our friends and family saved, even though we're not supposed to. Yeah? In our culture, we're not supposed to want to see people saved. That's naughty, that's bad, that's bigotry. You know, that's seen as it's fundamentalist, you're seen on a par with terrorists. You know, you want to convert people to your religion? That's, wow, what worst thing could you do? Um, but we looked at the fact that we can't help it. Uh, it's not that we want to convert people to our religion, we want people to know God. We want people to experience the reconciliation and forgiveness that we've experienced. We want people to be brought out of um, satanic blindness and brought into revelation when they see the glory of God. And it's just really, I don't know that you can be born again and not want other people to be born again. I would question if you are born again, if you don't want to see others born again. I think something happens inside, you think, oh, others have got to know this. So even though we're out of favour for that approach, we can't just switch that off. And um, if we do, it's a terrible thing. I want to look at the very same thing today, but in terms of prayer. Seeing our loved ones come to know the Lord, seeing our work colleagues come to know the Lord, seeing the mums and dads at the school gate, seeing those in our university come to know the Lord, and how that works with prayer. Okay? That's where we're going. Let's read the story again. John chapter 11. Verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, aren't there twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light's not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, well, let's also go that we might die with him. 
Now when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's coming into the world. When she'd said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here, he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Remember what he said last week? He snorted with anger. That's what the word means. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how we loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there'll be an odour. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now, in what ways am I going to use this story as a prayer parable? In this way. In two ways. Number one, Martha and Mary call out to Jesus because a loved one is in a bad way. Does that sound like prayer to you? Now, it's different. It wasn't prayer because Jesus was there on earth. So they're simply calling for, yeah? But Jesus now is exalted in heaven. He rose from the dead, exalted in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So when we call on Jesus now because a loved one is in trouble, what are we doing? We're praying. You see that? Okay. (laughs) Secondly, I want us to look at the disciples as well, because another angle of prayer, another, another way of describing prayer is that it's co-laboring with Jesus. It's seeing what Jesus is doing and getting behind it, which is what the disciples do. The disciples are with Jesus, he says, come on, we're going, and they're like, are you going back there? Yeah. Okay, we're going with you. They say, well, we're behind you, this is what you're doing, we're in it all the way. So praying is not just calling out on God, it's co-laboring with him. And those two dynamics are important to really grasp when you're praying. Because if you have just one or just the other, you tend to miss it. If you have just the calling out on Jesus dynamic, you tend to think you're twisting God's arm to do something he doesn't want to do. That's not prayer. If you have just the I'm co-laboring with Jesus thing, then you tend to just think, yeah, come on, Lord. And you don't get into this real thing of pleading and crying out. Because, well, he wants to do it anyway. 
you need to bring those two things together. Well, you know you're working with him, you're praying into his will, and yet there is battles to be fought, and there is crying out to be done. And so both these elements of prayer come together in this story. So we're going to look at six points about prayer from this story. It's going to be so long, I can't believe it. But <laughs> if, if it gets too long, uh, then we'll just call it a day and we'll carry on next week. Okay? So don't worry. Um, we sh- it should be light when we get out. Okay. Um, point number one. To give yourself to effective prayer, you must be convinced that Jesus' involvement changes everything about a situation. You must be convinced that Jesus changes things. This is fundamental. As soon as Jesus arrives, Martha says, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. As soon as Mary sees him, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Fundamental to their understanding of Jesus is that he changes situations. He hasn't changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He changes things. There is either a turnaround in the situation when you pray, or such a sense of supernatural peace about the situation that you know all is well. One or the other. Not some kind of weird kind of thing, well, you know, I prayed, so... No. Not good enough. Not good enough. You either, you either see Jesus break in and bring a miraculous change, or you know it's in, it's in his, it, it's, a, it's a witness in your spirit. It's all right. It's all going to be good. It's a change either way, either in the circumstance or in the sense of your approach to it. The anxiety's gone, the fear's gone. That's answered prayer. That or that. That's what Jesus does. Why, why for Mary and Martha were they so convinced that things would change if Jesus was around? Well, they knew that he's the one who turned the water into wine. A totally unnecessary miracle. I mean, compl- how unnecessary a miracle do you want? Someone said that the church has been trying to turn wine back into water ever since. <laughs> he turned, he did a miracle, he turned the water into, well, he turned a picnic into a banquet that fed thousands. On two occasions, 4,000, 5,000, crowds hungry, been with him for days, didn't want to, didn't want to leave to get food because they just loved listening to him speak. And in the end, they get hungry. Jesus says, what we got? A few fish and bread. Bang. T- changes it. Turns it around. This is what Jesus does. And then when his disciples are moaning later and worried about, worried about bread, he says, weren't you there? Didn't you see? Is your heart that hard? Haven't you learned? I change things. I act. That's what I do. Turns fishermen into world changers. Turns prostitutes into princesses. That's what he does. Changes. He transforms situations and peoples. He turns what had become a den of robbers into a house of prayer. A temple, which had turned it into a den of robbers. Just money-making schemes and keeping people out. And Jesus goes and he turns the tables over and drives them out and restores it to what it should be. Jesus changes things. Fundamental to your understanding of Jesus is that he brings transformation. Otherwise, you've got a different Jesus. You've got a manageable Jesus that you've most likely created yourself. My fear is, is that many, many Christians have a Jesus who is more like a machine that you go up to and you punch in your problem. And then out comes a ticket. And written on it is the reason why your problem will never change. Why it's God's will. I'm not saying that God will change 
take away every problem in our life, he won't. Sometimes he just gives you the perseverance to get through it. I'm not preaching utopia, I'm not preaching perfection. But it's absolutely God's will to intervene in our lives with miraculous power and bring transformation. And I would go as far as to say that it's very often our unbelief that keeps us away from that, robs us of that. I believe it. I think we've got so used to explaining why things don't happen, they've stopped happening. You develop a theology. The Bible gives us a Jesus who responds to faith, who responds to persevering prayer, responds to those who cry out. Just one touch from the king changes everything. You know the song? One touch. We've all known that, haven't we? We've all known that, haven't we? Those moments where Jesus breaks in and it's like the whole thing, whether it's internal, you're in turmoil, you're in anxiety, you're in fear, you're gripped with anger, a touch from the king, bang, everything's changed. I love it meeting people like that. You know when you, you're working through with someone pastorally and you're doing your best but you're not really getting anywhere and then you meet up with them once more and you're dreading what you're going to hear. It's got worse, you know, though, you know. And then they just go, I met with Jesus. And everything's different. I ended up with a laugh or cry. You want to laugh because it's so beautiful. You want to cry because it's so beautiful. You want to pull your hair out because you realise what a bad pastor you are because of your months of advice did nothing compared to one touch from Jesus. That's how it should be. <laughs> Pastoral advice is good, but it should always take people to Jesus. Hallelujah. I mean, even Jesus' entry into the, uh, into the earth marks the pivot point of history. He changed it all. Before that point, salvation history looked forward. Now, salvation history looks backward to him. Here's the point. His life, death, resurrection, ascension. It's all about that moment. Every good thing we enjoy from him now comes from that moment there. It's wonderful. He's the BC before AD afterwards. He's the pivotal point. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And I think our biggest problem is this. We underestimate him. We don't consider him enough. We don't esteem him enough. Maybe we're too caught up with self-esteem. We don't get caught up enough with Jesus' esteem. He's wonderful. He's a miracle-working life-changer. To think better of Jesus would affect the way we pray. It would change the way we pray. I love the Lord's Prayer. If you don't use the Lord's Prayer, repent. <laughs> he gave it to you to use. Yours is... I love, I love what I end with, because sometimes, you know, you know, you get onto some subjects and you're resting the stuff, and it's in your heart, and you're thinking, man, this is a... And, but you get to the end, and it's like, yours is the kingdom. Ah, oh, yours is the authority. You make the final decree. No one can unturn anything you do. Yours is the jurisdiction. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. You know, yours is the king. Yours is the power. I love that word in the, in, the, in the Bible. Dunamis, it means the ability to do. Your arm is not too short to save. Your ear is not too dull to hear. There's nothing that's beyond your reach. No, I love it. Just feed on it. Yours is the glory. Yours is the weight of presence. Yours is the substance. Yours is the shining radiant. It's like, oh yeah. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. So, he's, so Jesus changes things. Number two. There is a significant delay between the call going out and the answer coming. A significant delay between the prayer going out and the answer coming. There's a lesson there. There's this whole issue of timing and the mystery of God's purpose I want to speak to you about today because it is a massive one. It is a huge, and it's a real tightrope. We tend to insist that Jesus does it now or not at all. We don't say that. We don't say that. We never dare say that. But we pray and if he doesn't answer, we give up. 
When you do that, you're saying that. <laughs> yeah? And you might think, oh, you've been a bit negative today, Steph. Listen, I'm, I wanted you to know, I do not see myself on a podium saying, oh, you wicked lot. These are, str- these are battles that I struggle with daily in prayer. All of these things. But I might say you instead of we, because, you know, I've been being nailed on it all week, so it's your turn. <laughs> if you spend a week meditating on the stuff you're going to preach, you just, you do, you get nailed big time. You do. And it's good, it's, it's good, it's God. But, you know, don't expect to get away with it yourselves, all right? Look at this story. In the delay, the man dies. The sisters weep and mourn. The family and friends even start arriving to grieve with them. It seems that all hope has gone. The teacher's too late. Is he? He's not. But it seems like the teacher's too late. He's not too late. But here's the point. Enough has transpired to make the situation unredeemable without a genuine bona fide miracle. Enough has happened to make the situation so beyond hope that it needs a genuine miracle. Well, you think, that there's no way that could have just been coincidence. This is a miracle. That's often how God likes it. Now, I think this is the, the reason why the vast majority of Jesus' teaching on prayer focuses on not losing heart. The vast majority. We're told, Jesus told them this parable on prayer so that they would not lose heart. How easy is it to lose heart in prayer? Anyone ever experienced that? <laughs> you think, oh, I can't pray about that again. I'm bored of hearing myself say it. I don't know the way forward. I don't know, you know, you get confused. Am I out of God's will when there's all these things and, and the enemy's there with his arrows, <laughs> the archers lined up, firing all the accusations as well, and you're thinking, oh man. Jesus says, oh, let me tell you a little story so I don't lose heart. Let me tell you about an old woman. Hopeless case, really. Hopeless case. There's this judge didn't even fear God, didn't respect people. And, um, and she went at it and she said, look, I need justice. <laughs> she didn't stop. She just didn't stop. And in the end, she just got to the judge. So this woman doesn't wear me down. I'm going to give her what she wants. You need to wear God down in prayer. So I say, well, that's that weird imagery. It sounds like we're getting on his case. He invites us to do it. I don't understand it. He invites us to do it. doesn't mean you're trying to get him to do something. He doesn't want to do it. He's not like the judge in that sense. But it's not about the judge. It's about the woman. Uh, oh, there was this bloke, such an embarrassing story. This guy turns up. This guy, he's in, a hat, in his home. His friend turns up. He's got no bread for him. You think, big deal. Send him down to Tesco's. That's because most of you are English. <laughs> and you have no idea about hospitality. If you're in part of the world where hospitality counts for something and your friend turns up when you've got nothing in the cupboard, it's an absolute nightmare. It's shameful. So he goes around his friend's house at midnight or whatever and says, I need some bread. He says, me and the kids are in bed, leave me alone. What would you do? I mean, when the van didn't start for church the other Sunday, just for whatever reason, we haven't got to know our neighbours that well. We'd like to have done, but it's, just, it's not been particularly easy. And... Nine o'clock on a Sunday morning, you need a jump start. What do you do? I mean, Dean. He said, can't you ask a neighbour? <laughs> she said, all right, all right, you know. And I saw one of my, saw one of my neighbours, he, he, was, he was awake, so I, you know, I went for it, but I felt like that guy in that parable, you know, you think, you know. But I, there was a timidity on my part. Jesus says, here, this guy just went on, and he, he says, because of his shamelessness, in the end he got up and gave him the bread. Prayer. 
Shamelessness. Shamelessness, yeah. Jesus is encouraging shamelessness in prayer. And you've got to keep going, because I've prayed and nothing's happened. Pray again. Pray again. Don't stop. Third point, Jesus has a plan. Jesus has a plan. I love this. Jesus says, when he first finds out about Lazarus, what does he say? It's for the glory of God. That's what it's for. Lazarus is ill, it's for the glory of God. How? Jesus knows what's happening, he knows what's going on. He understands what the situation's about. Jesus is certain. There's no panic, there's no fluster, there's this confidence. He understands what the Father's doing. He doesn't lose his composure. Don't you love Jesus? Oh, he's just wonderful, isn't he? There's a storm of chaos and emotion going on. There he is, fully human, weeping and all that. But he's, he's, he knows what the Father's doing. He knows what he's about. He knows the plan. Do you know that Jesus has a plan? We're told in the Bible he knows the end from the beginning. We're told in the Bible that God works out everything according to his own counsel and pleasure. There's a plan. This is where trust, simple childlike trust comes in. It is an essential component to prayer. Childlike trust. Trust is massive. I think most reasons why believers um, fall off the rails um, or just give up is lack of trust. It hasn't worked out as they thought it was going to and they panic. Figure out your own solution. Trust. Childlike trust. The timing of God, the plan of God, trust. Without childlike trust, you are moved very easily from prayer to anxiety. It's a fine line, isn't it, prayer and anxiety? You've noticed that. You go out to pray, you come back worrying. You ever done that? I'm going to go out and see God. You come back like that. <laughs> what am I going to do? You're supposed to work the other way. Yeah? You're supposed to go like that and you get your head lifted. Oh, I know there's struggles. Childlike trust. At the end of the day, nothing seems to be moving. And it's, out of my, it's out of my control. What do I do? I trust you. Here I am. I trust you. That's the way it goes sometimes. We've become so fundamentally cynical it's easy to scorn such a posture. That childlike posture. You can scorn it. We're so cynical, I think, in so many ways. You know, big story. God's got a plan, a cosmic plan. It sounds more like a fairy tale. Maybe at first appearance, but on closer inspection, not so. Many, many people, even those without faith, without a religion, they would live with a sense of narrative. A sense of, there's, there's a point to this. There's a point to me in this. People, some people call it fate. There's a sense of pre-order. People, most people live with that. It's a deep thing that you can't just throw out. It's a thing that is from God. Even if they're the main character and the story in their mind is no bigger than themselves, there's this inherent sense of narrative, purpose, meaning that it's going somewhere, that life means something. And those who don't have this often end up in despair or even end in their life. It's that deep. It's interesting that even Richard Dawkins a famous atheist and hater of religions. He's missed, he's missed this in his latest campaign. We're going to critique his bus campaign in a second. This guy's supposed to be very clever. He's supposed to be, and I'm sure he is. Um, you've probably seen at least one of the 800 posters on buses that he and the British Humanist Association have commissioned. The poster says, there is probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. We just critique it. Yeah? You can't let people get away with that. There is probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. First, it doesn't work on a literary level. It's a statement of uncertainty. There's probably no God. To call people away from anxiety. Why are people anxious? Uncertainty. (laughs) 
So we'll give you an uncertain statement to bring you out of anxiety. Why are you anxious? I'm uncertain. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to just, on a literary level, it doesn't work. A more sensible quote would be one of the following. There's probably no God, but we'd better find out so we can be sure. Have you considered the Alpha Course? <laughs> or, I'm just having a bit of fun. I'm just trying to think, how can it be more logical? There's probably no God, so live in uncertain anxiety, because if there is and you spend your life ignoring him, you're scuppered when the end comes. <laughs> There's probably no God, so go home and ponder the fact that your life is essentially meaningless. It sounds harsh, but I'm just giving you some logic. This is the logical thing. Or there's probably no God, but we can't say for sure, because if there is, he is way beyond our capacity to investigate, and so we really shouldn't be suggesting that he probably isn't there, because that's pretty arrogant. (laughs) That makes sense. That does make sense. It's not just a Christian being, you know, oh, let's have fun, because, you know, there's no, you know, maybe our atheist here. I'm just being logical. These those statements make uh, sense. Um, maybe the poster should read, there is a God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life, because every breath is his gift, and when you experience his favour, you can find the very thing you were created for, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. But it probably aren't buses long enough for that, so I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do, but we need... <laughs> Bendy buses, three... I don't know, but we've got to think it through. So, and the other element which gives itself away and really fits with this whole idea of narrative, is that really this poster campaign, it presupposes that all of us want to and should be able to enjoy our lives. Why? What's that about? What does it actually mean to enjoy your life? On what grounds do these atheists exalt us to do this? If there's no story, no plan, no narrative, no meaning to any of our existence, if there's no purpose, then why do anything? Why be happy and why not worry? The whole thing is totally irrelevant. Why? Why are you telling me to, to be happy? What's it? There's no, there's no purpose in that. Why can't I worry? Undergirding what they're encouraging us to do is the supposition that we all want to enjoy our lives, which I agree with. But here's the question. When are we at our happiest? When we are doing things that we feel we were born to do. Cr- created for. Gifted in. When it feels like our story comes together. I don't think you can legitimately... <laughs> Enjoy your life when, in the context of this is actually utterly meaningless anyway and completely subjective. There's a plan. It's complex. I don't get it. It's messy from our perspective. It's unpredictable, but we need to humbly acknowledge this and not let our pride get in the way so that we, so that we don't actually submit to it. Because then we end up sulking when things don't go our way and give up praying because, well, God never seems to answer anyway. You mustn't do that. There is a plan. Fourthly, prayer and death are closely linked. Look at Thomas's quote. Let's go and die with him. Now, he meant it literally, I mean in terms of sacrifice. Prayer takes time. There's praying and there's praying. There's snatching prayers. The heat is not on, is it? <laughs> Sorry. There's snatching prayers, which we all do. Snatch prayer on the go. It's like a, you know, like a Mars bar prayers. Just eat it on the go. And then there's roasting a press. There's praying. If you only ever snatch prayers, you'll suffer for it. Your walk with God will suffer for it. The state of mind you're in will suffer for it if you only ever have Mars bar prayers. Um, and I would also be as bold as to say that in some way I believe God's purposes would suffer for it. 
God's purposes and prayer are fundamentally and powerfully linked. Every day, people around us are careering headlong into hell. And I think perhaps the greater tragedy is this, is that very often God's people don't really care that much. We're more worried about our own comforts very often, an eternal plight of people. And I know you might think, Professor, I think that's, I think I, I think I could say that there's part of me that I could be convicted and charged with that, to be honest. Just sidetracked with comfort. It's the West. Do I, how much do I care? I think very often I don't care enough to tell people, I don't care enough to really pray for them. To pray takes time. I'll say that again. It's just four words, but you've got to get it. To pray takes time. So we need to be willing to pay the price and give time to pray. Why do I say pay the price? Here's why. Other things will suffer in your life. You cannot manipulate time so you get 25 hours in a day. Even David Blaine can't do that. God has set time, our responsibility is to use it well. You can't get more, you can't get less, you can use what you've got well. The thing is, is that without the next point, all of us could leave here feeling bad, but I don't know how much things would change. Because what is it going to take to actually make us be willing to pay that price? I don't think we just will. I think it takes the next point, which is faith. This is massive. Listen to Wayne Gruden, theologian. If we pray little, it is probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. I read that this week, and I thought, it's not just succinct, it's true. I'll say it, I'll read it again. If we pray little, it's probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. I will give time to things that I think are worthwhile. So do you. I will give my time to things that I think are worthwhile and that I think will benefit from my time and attention. I will give time to my family. I believe my family are worthwhile and that they will benefit from my time and attention. I will prioritise them. I will give time to my work. I believe that my work is worthwhile and that it will benefit from my time and attention. It's a bit different for me because part of my work is prayer. So it's a slightly different dynamic, but... You give your time to things that you think are worthwhile and that you believe in your heart, uh, your time and attention will make a difference about. What do you believe about prayer? I want to ask you to ask yourself that. What do you really believe about prayer? Because I believe 100% that we need the certainty, the conviction that as we are engaged in prayer, we are making an eternity of difference. Only then will we invest in it significantly and as a priority. It costs. Sometimes it hurts to pray. We must be in faith that God will answer our prayers in the affirmative and in concrete and measurable ways. That this prayer is making a difference. Now here's the tightrope we have to walk between the mystery of God's timing, but also remaining in faith for the now response. This is the tightrope, okay? Yes, there's timing, there's a delay sometimes, there's a plan, but also God, you think, okay, that would be easy to live with, but also what you often find is God constantly draws his people to a place of faith for now. You find it in this story. 
Jesus says to Martha, your brother will rise again. She says, I know he will in the last day, Lord. He says, no, I am the resurrection and life. He brings her into the present and says, believe now. Because it's too easy to say, I believe for that. It's too easy. Isn't it? Oh, I believe that'll happen then. No, now. That's a massive thing I believe God wants to speak to us. I am the resurrection. Not I will be the resurrection. I am. Not I was. I am the now, the present. If God answers prayer, at some point, the answer has to actually come. Actually has to happen in time and space. Otherwise he doesn't. There has to be the moment. Doesn't there? There has to be the moment. Right, I've got the answer. Bang, move on to that. There has to be. We need to be those who create lists of answer prayer. There, it happened in bang, time and place. Right. Encourages us to keep going. If that isn't there, then that can that sense of just, well, it's in God's time, it's God's plan, it can morph subtly into unbelief. Okay, Sarah, Sarah. If it happens, it happens. Yeah? That's Islamic. Islamic is a very Islam is a very fatalistic religion, it's God's will. If everything that happens is God's will, then why are we told by Jesus to pray, your will be done? You see it all through the Bible. We must be looking intently for concrete answers. You see it with Elijah, and he said, Elijah, he's, there's been this drought on Israel for three and a half years, and then he's prophesied to the king, the rain's coming, get back to your palace quick. Then he goes and prays. Then he says to his servant, go and look. Is it coming? Servant goes, nothing coming yet. Prays again seven times. Finally, a servant says, there's a little cloud. It's no bigger than a man's hand. Just, he says, great. He's got the answer. Bang. Yeah? wasn't passive. Go and look. Has it happened yet? Go. What, what's this watch and pray about? It's because you're supposed to pray and then look for the answer. Expectation. That's, what you're supposed, that's why those two things are together. You see it all through the Bible. You see Moses in the Exodus, the burning bush. God says, I'm going to send you. Go, you're going to deliver the people from Egypt. He goes, down to, he goes to Egypt. Everything that could go wrong goes wrong. Everything. The Israelites even turn against him. There's all kinds of judgment. The whole thing gets worse. Time and time again, Pharaoh's changing his mind. But then there's the moment, bang! Pharaoh says, let him go. Gives him the treasure. As, as, as I promised, Egypt's just, just go. Take away, gave him, piled him down with treasure. Off you go. The moment came. Hannah and Samuel, no children. Her husband's other wife just can't stop having kids. <laughs> and constantly he's mocking her. There's no children. She's praying. She's the, and then the, the, pro, um, the, um, the priest Eli says, go on, go your way. You'll have a child. And then the moment comes. Ah, that month. Um, no period. No period. Is it just a bit late? No pregnancy testers in those days, you know? You just have to wait and see. Ah, I'm pregnant! You know. <laughs> I've got it! I've got it! Or... I have a lot of breakfast this morning now. <laughs> you know, no scans. The moment the answer comes. Abraham and Isaac, you're going to have a child. And all the chaos with sleeping with Hagar and getting Ishmael. No, that's not that one. Oh, no, why can't it be that one? I've got this special child for you. Years ago, but I used more promises. Okay, change your name. Change your name to Father of a Multitude. Okay, I'll change my name. Everyone's going to laugh at me because I haven't even got any kids at all. But that moment one day, bang, it comes. as a baby. Ah, the answer's in my hands. Yeah? It comes, it comes, it comes. There's waiting, there's pain, there's trial, but it comes because God promises it. We have to be expectant, looking for answers. Final point, we must remain engaged to the end. 
we must remain engaged. See, there's a plan in this story, but it has stages. In this story, the plan involves Jesus staying where he is for a few days, then travelling to Bethany, then speaking to Martha and stirring faith with her, and then calling the people to move the stone. He's constantly taking people with him and calling them to be engaged in every part of the, every stage of the plan. And he's always looking for our engagement and our involvement. It's too easy to be a 100 metres sprinter when it comes to prayer. Yeah? You hear a sermon and you have a burst. Anyone done it? You have a burst. Who's done, who's done bursts? I've done bursts. I hear the sermon. Right, that's it. Yeah? That's a couple of hours. I go to bed next morning. Okay, yeah. Uh, that guy say again? It was really inspiring at the time. And you do an hour that day, you know, you have bursts. You go, You don't see the answer. You know. It's a sprinter. Sprinting prayer. It's not, it's not how it should be. It's not how it should be. We slacken off. And then we develop a low view of prayer and then we disciple others into it. Because we're logical creatures. We're, we're, well, we're not logical. Actually, you know what? Humans aren't essentially logical. They're essentially driven by desire. Essentially. Okay? So you don't like praying anymore because they're not getting answered instantly and it's hard work. So you stop. But then because second, on a secondary level we're logical creatures, you have, to create, you have to create a framework to explain it that isn't basically I didn't like it. That doesn't sound too spiritual. So it's like this. It's like, well, I realise that the Lord is sovereign in these things. And, um, you know, ultimately his will prevails. And you develop a pathetic prayer life because God's sovereign. Well, I'm sure Jesus understood the sovereignty of God. He was God, after all. I mean, you know, you think he would understand the sovereignty of God. And he was a man of intense prayer. Intense prayer. Paul, surely Paul understood the sovereignty. He talked to us about the sovereignty of God in Ephesians, in Philippians. Pray on all occasions. The sovereignty of God should not, should just enhance your prayer life because you're praying to the one whose is the kingdom and the power. And the, yeah? You know you're in the places of impossibilities because you're, you're with him. But you can then disciple others into it. It's just, there aren't enough role models around either to contradict this low view. There aren't enough prayer warriors to reel off their mighty victories in the place of prayer. We need to change that as a church. We need to change that as a church. You do not get the victory without getting into the ring and determining from the start that defeat is not an option. In the early days of uh, Mike Tyson's reign as heavyweight boxing champion of the world, those of you that are old enough to remember him, it was, it was, it was a sight to see when he would get in the ring. Because he had this strange twitch like this. And he went in like a gladiator. So all these other guys had all these different coloured robes and all this stuff and tasty shorts. He had black shorts, no socks, black boots and a little towel over his head. And he'd just stand there like that and you know the referee's doing the thing, no, no biting, no rabbit punching the thing and, and Tyson wouldn't even look at him like he'd just a bit of twitching like this. And you look in the other guy's face and he was beat before the fight started. I mean, you just knew it. You could see it, yeah? He was there for the pay. There for the pay packet. Sometimes it didn't even last a round. I spent the whole time either clinging onto him or running away or whatever. It was just ridiculous. When you enter into prayer, you go like Mike Tyson, not the other person. You don't go for the pay. What do I mean? You don't go and say, I've done my prayer. Done that now, take that. I can go and enjoy my day now. 
you go to fight and you go to get some stuff from God. Yeah? And you go to win. If you are praying, if you are seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, you can go with that certainty. If you're just praying about getting a boyfriend again, and that's all you ever pray about, then you need to just change that. Okay? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, the things you need that are going to be added to you. Okay? It's not that you don't pray about those things. Or if you're just praying about that new car you want, and it's just, no, seek first his kingdom. Yeah, that's why the Lord's Prayer is so helpful, because you get your priorities right. You're praying, hallowed be your name. You're praying, your kingdom come. You're praying, your will be, then you get onto your knees. Yeah? But you can pray with confidence and with victory. And I'm excited about these three days of prayer and fasting we've got. I feel like it's going to do something in us as a church. I, think, I, I do. I feel like we're going to begin to get stuff in a way we've never had before. Not because you earn it through fasting, but fasting is just a way of saying, God, we're desperate. God, we mean business. God, we're willing to go without because we want to see your kingdom come. And we are by no means satisfied with what we're currently seeing. Yeah? It's a sense of, come on, God. Yeah? That's, that's what God wants to put in us. I believe he's going to do that as we do that. I don't know what I'm going to preach on next week. I'm kind of summing up now. I may do, we may look at two things. Fasting and changing God's mind through prayer. If we do the latter, if we do the latter, it would have to be the most biblical sermon I've ever preached. Because most of you from the start will be thinking that's heresy. So we're going to look at that, unpack every reference in Scripture which speaks about God either changing his mind or not to help you understand Biblical grasp of what it means to change God's mind through prayer. You up for that? Yeah. All right, okay. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray. And then we're going to just love him and worship him some more and get our eyes yeah, lifted to see how, how good he is. Father, we thank you for your complete sovereignty. We thank you that you are completely in charge. We thank you, Lord God, that you know the end from the beginning. We thank you that every day of our life is written in your book before one of them came to pass. We thank you, Lord, you've never been surprised by anything in that sense, but you cause all things to work according to your counsel and your purpose. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord God, that um, you're able to give us the book of Revelation because you know how it's all going to end. We thank you, you're sovereign over all of that. And we thank you in it all, you call us to come and seek your face. And we need you to help us to walk in that. We need you, Lord, to just, to just inspire us by the Spirit that we might be able to really understand spiritually. Lord, we know that you can't understand spiritual things with a natural mind, so help us to understand by the Spirit these things you're calling us into. That we might seek your face. God, that we might, that we might through prayer, just, just get so many victories. Lord, we want to see people's lives changed, Lord. We want to see people come out of darkness and into light. We want to see, Lord, resurrections, Lord God. People's hearts that are dull to you, Lord, just come into life and uh, being born of the Spirit and knowing God and suddenly all making sense, Lord God. We think of the hundreds of conversations in this room that we have had with our loved ones, our family, our friends, our colleagues about you. And we say, Lord God, we have faithfully looked to open our mouth and to just share Lord, we need you to bring them to life. We need you, Lord God, to open up the eyes of their hearts. We need you to remove the satanic blindfold, Lord God, and bring revelation. God, only you can do this. We look into you to do this, Lord God, and help us and teach us how to pray, how to fight, and how to persevere. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.